Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Please rain review the Katie Halper Show on iTunes. Please support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Today's show honors the memory and legacy of Mike Gravel, the late Senator of Alaska. Mike Gravel also ran for president in 2008 and 2020 when he was drafted by the Gravel teens who co-founded the Gravel Institute with him. The Gravel Institute is a crowdfunded organization that creates short videos to combat right-wing disinformation and bring progressive ideas to new audiences. I speak to Mike Gravel's daughter, Lynn Mosier, as well as Dan Ellsberg, who met Mike Gravel over the course of the Pentagon Papers and worked with Ellsberg around that, obviously, as Ellsberg gets into on the show. Today, June 29th, marks the 50-year anniversary of Senator Mike Gravel entering 4,100 pages of the papers into the record of his subcommittee on public buildings and grounds. And these portions of the Pentagon Papers were later edited by Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky and then published by Beacon Press, which is the publishing arm of the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations. This show was recorded on Sunday night, the day after Mike Ravel died. Stand by for a free bonus episode of the Katie Helper Show, where I release an excellent interview that we did with Mike Ravel from November. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So happy to be here tonight. And we have a really special show for you tonight. It's a very sad uh, time, but it's also we're really um, moved to be celebrating the life of Mike Ravel. Most people watching this probably know that he um, died at the age of 91 on Saturday and he was a senator from Alaska and um, he uh, did a lot for this country uh, he did a lot against war and militarism, and he uh, famously read the uh, Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. And so I'm really happy to be bringing on to the show to talk about his life and his memory and his legacy, um, uh, Mike Gravel's daughter, Lynn Mosier, as well as Dan Ellsberg, who you may uh, recognize from uh, leaking the Pentagon Papers. So uh, Lynn and Dan, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And so sorry for your loss, um, Lynn, and uh, to the world, honestly, for, for the loss of Mike Ravel. Um, thank you so much for coming. And do you want to just, I guess, start, Lynn, by telling us what you're thinking, feeling? Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I'm grateful for uh, for you reaching out to me. And it's so wonderful to see Dan. I mean, my God, my dad loved you. <laughs> And um, and he loved what you what you stood for, which was courage uh, in the face of seeing such egregious wrongs that were being hidden. Um, and, you know, he he just, you know, admired your courage. And I think the way you worked together, I mean, you were out on the lamb, as I remember, you know, re recall from history that you were running uh, on the run and, uh, you know, tried to get higher profile uh, senators to read the Pentagon Papers or to get it out there. Um, the newspapers were being harassed and shut down on their printing of, you know, any excerpts. And, uh, and you uh, somehow got in touch with my dad and, uh, and he, he jumped at the opportunity to, to get the, get the, get the Pentagon Papers out because 
He knew how significant that was and the electorate needs to be informed in order to make any proper decisions. So I'm, I'm blessed to be involved in my dad's life. And the important thing is that he wants not just the, you know, what he's done to be recognized, but to be taken forward because Dan, I'm sure you know this, which is the, the Supreme court case where it's it's legal precedent now that any member of Congress, senator or otherwise, is protected and they can release um, uh, state secrets that are really important uh, and necessary information for the for the public. Um, and we've had so many examples of that. You know, you were just talking about Snowden, and you know, so I, I want to turn the time over to you, Dan, because you know you were there doing it, but. But Mike's legacy and what he wanted to put forward is that there is legal precedent um, for doing the right thing uh, that you you both so courageously did. So, yeah, I, I turn things over to you, Dan. Thank you very much, Lynn. Uh, you know, the, the problem with that is that uh, Mike Gravel, my friend Mike Gravel, set a precedent that I can't think anyone else has taken advantage of in 50 years since then. Because... Uh, he pointed to the speech and debate clause, which enabled him to read on the uh, floor of the Senate and not be questioned uh, as to who had given it to him or what the circumstances. He could not be questioned, meaning he couldn't reveal. He couldn't be forced to reveal the source, and he couldn't be prosecuted for doing that. But actually, there's a price for saying something that the president doesn't like or the head of your party doesn't like, and. Uh, I don't think, uh, no doubt, there have been some risks of that sort taken uh, over the years. But in terms of actually reading out classified material that should be known uh, and taking the risk of the approval that will come from that, only Mike, uh, before him and after us, showed that courage. And um, it was I realized it was just 50 years ago, exactly this month, that I called him and uh, asked him if it was true that he was going to run a, that he was uh, doing a filibuster against the draft, against the renewal of the draft. And uh, he said, yes. I said, if you were really serious about that, I could give him enough material that would keep him busy speaking till Christmas, I said. And he said, yes, he'd be very anxious to do that. Well, there's been various accounts of how that got to him. I got Ben Bagdikian, who from the Post, who was taking back a series to take back another box to give to Mike Gravel. And as a journalist, he was quite reluctant to do that just on a professional basis. He didn't think he should be an intermediary in this process. And I said, well, you know, the Post doesn't get them unless uh, Gravel gets them. So reluctantly, he did take them back and uh, transferred them to Mike. A, a little known story, I think, is uh, how Mike told me he addressed these 7,000 pages, I think it was somewhat less than that that I had to give him at that point of the whole study. How could he deal with all this? And he, uh, he called his staff together and he said, here's material I've gotten that should be out, the public should know, it's been wrongfully withheld. I'm going to put it out one way or another. He had to make copies, many, many copies of it. And he said, so I need help on this, but it may be illegal. You may be subjecting yourself to prosecution if you do this. So I can't ask any one of you to do it. Uh, it has to be on a volunteer basis. And he added something then, actually, 
every one of them. I think no one did back out. But he said something that when I heard it, uh, I was very moved by. He said, when I was in the Army, becoming a lieutenant as a platoon leader, uh, preparing to be a platoon leader, I think he went into counterintelligence of all things later. Uh, So he knew the abuses of the secrecy system at that point. But he said, we wore a patch on our arm in the Army, now not in the Marines, which I was in, which said, follow me. And he said, Dan Ellsberg is out there all alone, and I want to join him. And uh, that was, as I say, when I heard that, I was uh, very impressed by that as a former platoon leader myself. And his people all did join him. His intent actually was to do an extremely long filibuster for which he prepared himself with a... uh, a bag in which to urinate in down his pants so he couldn't be forced off the floor uh, quickly. And uh, he was prepared. He prepared physically for it and everything. He was all ready to go when, uh, I've forgotten some of the details, but when one of the leaders of the House on the Republican side guessed from the papers in front of him in that that he was about to reveal the Pentagon Papers. And as I recall, they called for a quorum vote Uh, at that time to see if there were enough people there, slowing everything up. And I think he managed actually to stop it some way. Uh, Mike had been outmaneuvered. I think he let the guy uh, get the floor somehow in a way that he could have stopped, but he didn't. He then called a meeting of, uh, I think it was Grounds and Fisheries or something like that, a rather obscure subcommittee of which he was the head. Uh, He got one other person to stand in the, sit in the office, member of uh, Congress for a meeting, and the place was packed with uh, uh, with reporters on this. And he began reading the Pentagon Papers into this committee meeting. And his, I re- I recall very well that after three hours of reading, he did something that um, caused him more criticism, probably even than his defiance in uh, reading these papers, which was that he began to cry. And a man, a senator, that's unseemly behavior. What he was crying about being extremely uh, tired and pressed after this day of getting prepared and copying all these papers and so forth was, I remember he, the thought, he told me that he put it Flesh was being seared at this moment. Americans were having metal through their flesh, and Vietnamese, and people were dying. And and it was because he had read something in the papers at that point that referred to the drug dealing of of the government we were supposedly supporting, that were propping up their illegitimate government, and that we were dying and killing for a government of crooks and drug dealers. And the idea of it just overcame him. In short, he reacted appropriately to the appalling nature of this of this information. Now, on the one hand, hardly anybody in, I don't know of anyone in the, in the Congress who actually showed that much concern or sentiment about what was going on actually in the Senate to do such a thing, but certainly didn't have the courage to take on to take this over, he didn't know whether he would be prosecuted. He didn't know at that point whether he uh, he might be prosecuted for it, but definitely censured. And a move was made to censure him at that point. And I, he told me exactly how uh, Mike Mansfield, uh, who was a Senate Majority Leader at that point, more or less saved him from being censured. I think he told me also that it, his he had told his wife, "Look." 
at worst to worst, I may be expelled from the Senate, he said, for doing this. And that was a, a real possibility. But he said, if worst comes to worst, I'll go back, I'll do real estate as before, I'll leave my Senate career and so forth. Very hard to think of somebody else who contemplated such a uh, such a possibility or, uh, do, for doing the right thing. Ben, I, so right on. I, I, think, I just want to say one thing because it's happening right now. Yeah. The New York Times put out an obituary on Mike that had more focus on the fact that he wept yeah. versus yeah. what was in the papers. And this is mainstream media that's focused not on the content of the papers, but in the way it was presented, yeah. which I'm thinking, you know, that's not journalism uh, from anything that I can see. And the, the obituary writer had been deceased for two years. He's, he's so, I don't know what they, <laughs> what they've got, uh, the New York times maybe. And I'm sad that they don't have enough staff that they can actually have, you know, maybe Katie, you can chime in on it. Well, we know that they got rid of their public editor, so those <laughs> make sense. And I'll, I'll be chiming in more. I just really, I want to make sure that, because I know Dan, so Dan Ellsberg very generously has given us some of his time, despite the fact that he is throwing a birthday party dinner for his own friend. That's right. Okay, I was just reminded of my wife that uh, they're here. But I would like to add, uh, there, there's two things in his career that are, are not very well known. Uh, first of all, he did actually go on to get the Pentagon Papers uh, published in uh, Beacon Press uh, edition, uh, which was subject to uh, court proceedings against them that virtually almost came close to bankrupting at that point, and they tried to uh, prosecute uh, aides of his. I think it was Lynn Rodberg who had helped in this process. Again, uh, he was using this speech and debate clause saying that uh, in the Constitution, saying that he could present anything he wanted uh, on the floor of the Senate. Now, I, three senators before that had actually pointed that out to me themselves, how they didn't have to reveal me. They were anxious to use these papers. They, they couldn't be forced to reveal the source. My attitude was, if it helped somehow the process to reveal that you got them from me or that it was authentic papers or something, uh, otherwise, uh, and uh, uh, I'm not anxious to be identified and... and uh, face prosecution for this, but uh, fine, if you don't have to. Each of those three, I'll name them, Senator Fulbright, Senator Mathias, Republican, and um, Senator McGovern, running for president, each of them mentioned, yes, I can do this, and each got cold feet within a day uh, or a week, and something said, I can't afford to do this in my career, even though they would absolutely, there would have been no question of prosecution of them, no legal risk, but some their their colleagues might, as in the case of Mike, uh, you know, censure them, or uh, in the Fulbright's case, afraid that they would say, "Oh, he can't keep a secret." We'll take foreign military aid away from the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which he headed, and give it to the more friendly Armed Services Committee. And to avoid that, he let me do it, not put it out. So Mike was the exception to that. Later, when I was on trial, he came back to me and said, now the war is still going on. And he said, uh, do you have anything more you can put out? 
And I said, well, actually, what I'd given to Senator Mathias, he had not put out. It was from Nixon himself. Uh, that is from his own National Security Council. It was called National Security Study Memorandum 1, NISM 1, NSSM 1. So I gave it to Mike, and uh, he tried to introduce it uh, in uh, speaking again. And this time I said, that's classified? Stop. You can't do that. So they went into, uh, uh, they stopped him from doing, they put on a committee to investigate what the legalities of this were, which included uh, Republican Senator Javits, and uh, I think it was uh, Hart, was the other person, Senator Hart, to come back, Democrat. So they came back in a closed session and said, uh, you know, surprisingly, there doesn't seem to be any law that prevents us from releasing this classified information. And there wasn't and isn't. We don't, uh, Congress was not restricted on that. And when I put it to, I'll say specifically, Senator Udall later, uh, who was retiring, that he could definitely put out the 6,000 pages of the torture study that the Senate Intelligence Committee had done it, absolutely could have done it without any risk of prosecution. No, uh, they were not, uh, that was not what a senator did, in effect. And so we don't have that study still. Finally, he did put it, uh, he did in fact give it to my suggestion to Senate, to Representative Ron Dellums, who in fact did insert it in the congressional record, in the House congressional record, 500 pages there, which led to the Dellums rule, uh, as it's called, that you can't put that much into the Congress without uh, somehow permission of the, uh, of the Speaker somehow. In short, it, what it comes down to is that in 2007, years later, I remember calling Mike when I was quite dismayed at the performance of the Democrats, as often I'm kind of a self-hating Democrat. And, Best kind, uh, the only acceptable and, kind. Yeah, and I said, uh, I said, Mike, because they were taking no real advantage uh, during the Iraq war, which Mike opposed you know, more than any other senator that I can think of more vocally in his run, in a run for president at one point. And the one person before Bernie Sanders, I think, since Eisenhower, to use the phrase military industrial complex in a presidential candidate speech and to describe that as a, as a major factor in the, uh, in the Iraq war going on. He also said, uh, challenged his other candidates that they would not issue a no first use commitment that, that they would not commit never to initiate nuclear war. And looking back at that record, it occurs to me, apparently you can't get the nomination of the Republican or Democratic Party if, like uh, Mike, you take the position you won't initiate the near extinction of the human species by, uh, by a preemptive attack. And anyway, that's a disqualification, essentially, for getting the nomination. Anyway, uh, they had backed off from impeachment of who was, by that time, the most impeachable president we'd ever had, George W. Bush, for the Iraq War and for a number of other things. And uh, having promised almost, uh, including Ron Dillums, to, uh, to pursue impeachment, uh, they weren't doing it. And I said to Mike, finally, Mike, is it your impression that this Congress is unusually, extraordinarily cowardly? And he said, no, usually cowardly. 
said it was just the same 40 years ago. And unfortunately, uh, with him gone and with him out of the Senate, uh, it pretty much remains that way now. So our memorial to him should be to try to induce or persuade or coerce other people to think about his example and the moral courage that it took because we won't, we humans won't get through this nuclear era and this era of climate change without a lot more moral courage of the kind that is extremely rare and that Mike Gravel showed, your father showed. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Enjoy go. the birthday party. Yes. Thank and thanks so well. much again for your time. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Dan. Thank wow. you. Bye. I know that got me. I know, right? I mean, I, I, I love the two of them together. And I remember that story that he said that, you know, no, the Congress isn't unusually cowardly. It's usually cowardly. Right. And it's just, it's so, God, it's just, that's the frustrating part. But, but you and the online presence, like the teens that, that did the Gravel campaign this last round, um, there's a, a, a beautiful um, documentary coming out about that called The American Gadfly um, that talks about it, it. You know, maybe one Mike Gravel campaign like this, a viral one, doesn't change the world, but maybe a thousand do. And uh, so that's kind of like the the reason for the film, which is there's no reason to be uh, cynical. You know, people with, you know, with their online shows, with, you know, whatever, calling up a senator and seeing former senator and seeing if he'll run for president. Um, right. It can happen. So, you know, and thank you for for bringing this this show out. Thank you. Of course. Yes. I'm really looking forward to ha hearing more stories from you. But also wanted to let you know that I reached out to um, Noam Chomsky for a comment. Um, and here is what he had to say. Mike Gravel was a courageous and honorable man, a person of real integrity. It was a privilege to have known and worked with him. So. Oh, sweet. Another statement. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Um, I had wanted actually um, your father... Chomsky and Dan Ellsberg to to have a chat, and of course I didn't do that in time. But I would like to do something with um with um Dan and and Noam. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dream team. And by the way, thank you so much to everyone. There's a lot of great um, chats coming through. Uh, I'm not sure if you're seeing them. I'll highlight some of them. We have one from Ireland. Um, uh, respect to Mike Ravel, one of the few U.S. politicians who helped the world by their service. Condolences to Lynn from one of your Irish fans. Um, just people stopping by to support the show, which is really wonderful. We can we should talk later, Lynn, about some kind of charitable organization. Yeah. We can give some of these yeah. chats yeah. too. Um, yeah. And yeah, the um, there's just the the important work that my dad was working. Just you know, he he loved to work, and he worked up until the end. Um, was on direct democracy, so we have this system right now of representative democracy that it's basically minority rule that forty senators can stop anything, and the filibuster unfortunately has been so bastardized. It used to be the filibuster was for a complete airing of the issue, and you could talk about the issue for a long time. Now it's been turned into something like reading green eggs and ham on the, the floor of, of the Senate in order to stop something from proceeding. So, so that's, you know, 40 senators 
holding the rest of America hostage. Uh, so that's minority rule. And then it's also, you know, this personality, partisan, you know, celebrity politics of the, the politicians are on the front page of the paper, not the issues. So in a direct democracy, and there's a very functioning one in Switzerland, um, and then we see it at the state level, where the people are the fourth check in our system of checks and balances. So the people are the check on the legislative branch, the, the Supreme Court, and the executive branch. So they act as a fourth uh, uh, branch of government through this initiative process or direct democracy. And, you know, with that, you have the ability of the people to not just give away their power on election day and then protest and pray and cajole or try to buy political, the politicians to do what they said they were going to do when they were running, but you actually have the ability to vote on the issues themselves. And what we see in Switzerland is that the issues are on the front page of the paper and the politicians are on the back page of the paper, which is what right. it should be. In, in my dad's opinion, and certainly, you know, we look at what's happened since he was in the Senate in the 70s and it hasn't gotten better, it's gotten worse. So whether it's, you know, gun violence or, um, uh, inequality, uh, uh, economic inequality, um, you know, healthcare, these things that, um, the people overwhelmingly want, and they're not going to spend themselves crazy because they know it's their own money. So, you know, all the studies that on direct democracy and the power of the purse is that people make the people in a, uh, in a large body make better decisions than their representatives. He loves the the teens, Henry uh, Williams and David Oakes, uh, that, you know, contact in there's such smart young men and Henry McGowan and all of the, all of the crew there. Um, that's the future. And so he was like, you know, this is for the future. Um, you know, so he wasn't completely verbal uh, in his last uh, days, but he was, he would make his, his eyes light up when you said certain things <laughs> right. and you talk about the teens, you talk about, you know, American gadfly, the, the documentary about what happened, this, this campaign, that there's no reason for cynicism, get involved. Um, and, uh, and you know, his eyes would get wide. <laughs> right. Uh, let's just build on where we do have common values, which is, you know, even with North Korea or anybody, you could say, you know, do you love your children? Oh, you love your children? I love my children too. Oh, let's build on that. But I digress. So direct democracy, um, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, he's, you know, very uh, upset about that, that there's no disarmament all of these years later. Um, so, but it doesn't get implemented, even though the people know it's the right thing, you know, squandering trillions on a nuclear arsenal is ridiculous. Um, nobody's going to use that, nor should they ever. So, but you can't change that with our present system. We had a really great um, exchange uh, and I'll, I'll make some clips. I made one clip from uh, our interview back in November um, and I'll make some more, but he's called them a bunch of loons, the people in power now um, and how they were going towards annihilation. Um, yeah, it would be great if you could read. You know, it's it's a, it's it shouldn't be surprising, but it is surprising. Um, it's naive of me to be surprised. It's I guess it's not surprising. It's just disturbing 
or as as your father said to um, to Dan uh, Ellsberg, what is you, they're, they're not unusually cowardly. They're usually cowardly. <laughs> right. So uh, usually cowardly and um, disgusting, basically, of the media to be printing the the uh, the obits that they are. But uh, you wrote one, and I actually don't know. I mean, you are the daughter. You are the daughter of the person in question. Um, that is a, v- a valuable resource, regardless of one's politics, right? That's, that's I think, publication worthy. Um, and I haven't seen it around. I've been Googling it because you sent it to me. So do you want to read part of your of the obituary road of your father? Yeah, I don't have it printed out in front of me. Um, so I'm... I, I can actually... Yeah, can, if you could bring it up, sure, I can yeah. read it. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the emphasis on this um, is that it's not about his accomplishments. That's great that he accomplished all of these things. It's about what can you do with it now? And so he wanted to emphasize that there's a roadmap for this in his books, um, Citizen Power, also his most recent, which is The Failure of Representative Democracy and the Solution, a legislator of the a legislature of the people. It's a very long title. He and Howard Zinn had you know, the same uh-huh. kind of problems naming their books. Right. Um, but uh, but so the the obituary that I wrote uh, emphasizes what what he he wanted to emphasize, which is what do you take with these accomplishments to go forward? Right. Um, and uh, and so he had he had a lot of you know amazing accomplishments the 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 pentagon papers certainly his run for president in 2000 in you know his his campaign didn't last uh, all that long in 2007 but he was on the debate stage he got there and he drew attention and galvanized a whole new audience to what's the craziness that's going on here right. um and that the fact that the debates the democratic party is is a party of war and militarism and they feel that they have to be as you know quote unquote patriotic as the republican party and it's a bunch of it it doesn't make any sense you can't just wrap yourself in red white and blue and say that that that's patriotism. He had a he had a phrase that he said when I was a little girl, and we were at a speech that he was making, and he picked up a little uh, American flag off of a cupcake that was part of the dessert or something like that, and he waved it, and 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 he said, "There's this phrase, you know, my country right or wrong. That's not that's not a good phrase. If your if your country's wrong, say something." You know, you you don't just sit by idly. And this was during, you know, the the uh, just after or as the Vietnam War was concluding, um, that you don't follow your country right or wrong. That's not patriotism. Um, you know, you you look for the facts and you try to evolve. Um, so that's you know that's what his emphasis was. Yeah. Um, well, I actually I dragged an image of a screenshot of your of the obituary. Oh, thank you. Um, oh, and I also want to make reference, there's an, a marvelous author, Joe Loria, who yeah. wrote a book with, with Mike, um, and he has a uh, consortium news is his outlet. And he has done what I think is, you know, a great tribute because, you know, he's been in the political world much deeper than I have. He was a, a journalist for the New York times, I believe. Um, Boston Globe, uh, and some places that made him feel con- conflicted about how they were, you know, showing the news. 
Um, and so I, I encourage people to look at Joe Loria's, it's spelled L-A-U-R-I-E, Joe Loria at Consortium News um, for his piece on Mike Gravel. So thank you. Thanks. And here is your piece. Okay. Now we can look at part of um, it. <laughs> yeah. Great. So thank you. Uh, so Mike Gravel, a maverick two-term U.S. senator from Alaska, 1969 to 1981, and two-time presidential candidate who daringly released Daniel Ellsberg's copy of the top-secret Pentagon Papers in Congress, thus securing the legal precedent for elected officials to inform the electorate on matters that are hidden under the guise of state secrets, has died in Seaside, California at the age of 91. Gravel was known in recent decades for his advocacy of direct democracy in his campaigns and his books, Citizen Power, also the, the Citizen Power, comma, The Failure of Representative Government and the Solution, a Legislature of the People. It's important to get the 2021 edition of that because there was an earlier one that that needed, um, yeah, so it's the 2021 issue with a, a bright white back cover. Um, uh, a Political Odyssey, The Rise of American Militarism and One Man's Fight to Stop It, which is uh, co-authored with Joe Loria, and The Kingmakers, which is co-authored with a gentleman by the name of David Eisenbach. Um, other projects covering his work include the award-winning documentary American Gadfly, uh, which you can Google that and find the trailer, um, and the Academy Award-nominated documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, which is about Dan Ellsberg uh, and Mike, uh, their relationship there too, uh, and the Gravel Institute. And uh, the Gravel Institute is the entity that the teens um, who drafted Mike this last uh, presidential round ha have put together. And they're, they're genius in that what they're trying to do is uh, fight the the disinformation that's happening in uh, in mainstream media and uh, and elsewhere by producing short, you know, six to eight minute video clips of different experts in different areas. The one that I watched recently was, I think, Richard Wolff, The Economist, mm -hmm. on uh, the myth that capitalism lifts people out of poverty. It does not. He has the facts there. It's It's an eye opener. It needs to be taught not only at the college level, but at the high school level. So I think these short clips are excellent that you can take them, use them, you know, if you're a teacher in an open university or any setting uh, or any sort of, you know, setting, you can share these and have a conversation, make it like a book club. Take one of these six to eight minute videos, have a conversation about it, just get talking about it. Um, so gravelinstitute.org. Uh, uh, is very important. Um, and then my dad was, uh, you know, from Massachusetts, from French Canadian immigrants, uh, following his service in the army counterintelligence corps in Europe. Uh, he earned a degree in economics from Columbia while he supported himself as a taxi driver. So he, he, <laughs> he has very modest beginnings and, uh, he's, he's always stayed modest. Um, you know, uh, uh, so, um, after evaluating where a young man with no money might fulfill a dream of becoming a U.S. senator, he set out for Alaska in 1956. This is before Alaska became a state in 1959. 
In Alaska, he built a real estate business, married and had two children, and served two terms in the Alaska House of Representatives, including two years as Speaker of the House. Um, I'll segue there just for a moment because sure. one, of the, one of the things that he did when he was Speaker of the House uh, in Alaska is that the the politicians in Alaska had never been out to the rural bush country, and he he hadn't done much travel there either. But he he took his um, his committee uh, when he was in the House in uh, in uh, Juneau out to the bush, and I, I get goosebumps off of this because the 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 Native Americans love Mike because he did so much for at that time the the average educational level in the bush uh, in the Native community was third grade. Um, now there are more than a hundred PhDs in the Native community in Alaska, and the that was accomplished in one generation because Mike fought for the uh, the schooling, the education of the children in the rural areas. Up until that time, they had to be shipped, they were sent outside, you know, to um, uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs schools in the lower 48, which is just sounds horrible. That sounds horrifying. Um, so they, they built schools in Alaska and they started educational programs. He got satellite um, communications for Alaska through infrastructure building, um, and the, of course, the uh, the Native Claims Act, which was so important because the 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 natives, the indigenous uh, land rights that they had been fighting for for so long, um, you know, Mike uh, was key in getting that legislation into law, and what that allowed was instead of having the reservations. For the indigenous people, they followed a different model, which were corporations. So there are, I believe, uh, 12 regional corporations and more than 200 village corporations in Alaska now, and they manage billions of dollars. Uh, so this from a generation that was subsistence uh, and it, not much of anything to now being able to have those young native leaders and older native leaders be in the, you know, managing billions of dollars on behalf of the community. And they have, they have risen and, and now they are, you know, they are uh, in, in a dignified and respected way. And they work together with Mike um, for the, so the, the, the natives, uh, the indigenous people, uh, and Mike worked together regarding the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, because that was a big deal. We were going through oil embargoes. Uh, the U.S. economy was destabilized because of these embargoes. Uh, people were looking for energy sources. Alaska had the energy. So he worked with the natives uh, to make sure that this could be uh, done uh, in a way that was acceptable for them, that was good for them, the people of Alaska, and provided the energy and worked with the environmentalists to make sure that this could be done in an environmental way. And the pipeline has been excellent. The caribou like to get close to it because it's nice and warm. The problem was with the Valdez disaster and the irony of that was that my dad had written in double hull uh, legislation for, for tankers, double hulls to protect uh, the tankers, not just the way that they are today, but to have a double hull. And with a double hull, we would not have had the Valdez 
disaster. Um, so, you know, the he did switch from oil, uh, you know, obviously as the science improved and he wanted um, Alaska to lead the way again with a wind project on the Aleutian Islands because they get a ton of wind. Um, so the Aleutian chain, he wanted a wind project that that would help Alaska again lead forward the country with energy. It didn't happen, um, but he was an advocate for solar, wind, um, and of course he was uh, uh, very opposed to nuclear energy, uh, not just the the insane nukes that we have as weapons um, that cost trillions and waste our money, but this this uh, fascination that was brewing during his time. Um, he was one, I think, maybe the first in the Senate to stand up and say, no, this is not a good alternative energy. We need to, we don't have any system of disposal. We don't know anything about this. And what was happening were um, nuclear tests in the seabed of Alaska under Mchitka Island, which is also in the Aleutian uh, area. Um, and the uh, Department of Energy had done two tests and they monitor it today for radiation leakage, but there were people calling my dad later, crying, saying that a loved one had died young, and it looked like all of the signs of radiation poisoning. So, you know, because he brought such attention uh, to this, that this is craziness, no, no nuclear testing under Mchitka Island, um, and, uh, and no, no moving forward with, with, uh, nukes as an, as a clean power source. Um, it, it, he stood up for that and he helped galvanize, um, public, um, support of those ideas. And all I can say is thank God, mm. uh, because that's, we know that's not the, the, the way to go. Um, do you want to read more? Do you want to go to the gadfly? Is there anything you want to make sure that oh, people, uh, if you don't mind putting up the, yeah, of course. The, I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Yeah, that's, I, that's I one. It. Yes, yeah, of course. And then we have, we have a few and more then, pages. If you, yeah. And if so you we can go to gadfly after that, that'd be awesome. Sure. Cause it talks about the teens and, um, let's see. So we went through that. Um, so we talked about Alaska. We talked about nuclear policy and Chitka Island. We talked about that. Um, yeah, so there was a Supreme Court case about that, which the Supreme Court at that time decided in favor of doing the nuclear tests under Amchitka. But because Mike had made such a brouhaha about it, uh, there was such an outcry and others. It wasn't just my dad. There were many others raising the alarm that this is craziness. Um, the, uh, the Department of Energy, even though they had the right to do more testing, uh, decided not to <laughs> after two times, even, you know, back in the seventies, he was on the right side of history. Also with L LGBTQ rights, um, legalization of marijuana. I didn't put that into my, my obit because <laughs> I ran out of room, right. but, uh, legalization of marijuana, LGBTQ rights. He was for that way, way yeah. back in the seventies. So glad to see that's coming through now. Yeah. And then here is, um, uh, so yeah, that was about like, again, the, the no safeguards standing up in the Senate saying this, you know, this is not clean energy, uh, nuclear, you know, so we have that, that wonderful clip of him. I think it was the first debate 
where he um, talked about the mainline candidates frightening him. Yeah. Uh, he was an early advocate for um, normalizing relationships with China, even before Nixon came out with his um, normalization of China. Uh, he wanted to um, uh, right the wrongs of imperialism that were done in Panama. And so he worked with the Panamanians to put um, uh, a study together so for the Panama Canal so that it could be uh, respectful and inclusive of uh, Panamanians. Um, and, uh, and then he, you know, his, uh, economic work, uh, he's done a lot of work with binary, uh, economics and Lewis Kelso, if anybody wants to Google Lewis Kelso, another fabulous mind, um, that, you know, we have the, the, the ability to, um, whether it's through a state or, you know, similar to an employee stock ownership plan, a state, and it's written into the tax code, um, can use their um, uh, financial wherewithal to move a project forward uh, and issue shares to the people of that state. You know, we could do it at a national level too, where the resources that are being used for this project are shared with the people of the state. So maybe a little bit of Yang before Yang was there, yeah. but, uh, but along the same lines of how do we get money to people, the elites, the rich, the, the 1% and the 0.0001% have this um, passive income. Why can't other people have passive income? Uh, and it is, it, it is available through a mechanism like this. Um, so I think that's, that hits the high points uh, and then his beautiful family. We're so lucky. Right. Um, but I'd love to show that clip of American gadfly yeah. if, you've, if you've got it. Um, yeah, of course. Okay, you know, let me do that. Yeah, that brings things current to where he really talks about the faith in the people and the faith in these teenagers who are maybe they've turned 20 by now. I expect great things from them. Right. Um, David Oaks and, and Henry uh, Williams, it, it, they're just fabulous. And then the um, the director and producer, Sky Whalen, I, I am I'm so grateful to him because he um, worked on dad's first campaign, a first presidential campaign uh, back in 07 and uh, followed him. You know, he'd gone to film school and learned uh, his craft. And then when this next thing happened with the teens, he's like, we have to document this. Right. And thank God he, he did is all I can say, because now we can have that forever. Right. OK, I'm going to show the American Gadfly trailer. And then, of course, there's that other documentary about your father from a while ago um, when he was running. Yeah. Students contacted me and asked if I would run for president again. And I said, do you realize how old I am? Gravel is thinking about running at 88 years old. 88. We saw Senator Gravel as an icon that a lot of people on the left could rally around. Some of these people frightened me. They frightened me. Love implements courage. And courage is the virtue that enables all your other virtues. Uh, what he did surrounding the Pentagon Papers, it was uh, a national act of service, pretty much unparalleled. Young people have more power than they can possibly imagine. Young teenagers are managing the campaign of the oldest person in American history to run for the presidency. I've never heard of any high schoolers doing something like this before. In every sense, he was running as a kind of gadfly saying what a lot of people think and irritating the front runner. Why would any presidential candidate produce a video that is this strange? Goal here is to get us into the democratic debates. 
The drill's got nothing on me. Congress crew, Bush, Dub, Leia Cheney, Condoleezza, Liz Ice, and all the other haters. That's absolutely, absolutely perfect. If you got 65,000 donations, you had a chance of getting on the debate stage. The DNC were so worried that we were planning on doing some stunt at the debates. No, what do they think we're going to do, throw a pie? Like, the pie that I brought is unrelated. The whole world is smaller than I thought. We have over 25 million hits. 25 million hits is viral. You guys are changing the game. I love them, admire them. They're the future. Hey, Mike, how are you? <laughs> we young people have got to stay up to get the right. The powers that we're up against have wealth untold. Trying to break that monopoly is going to be a handsome undertaking. I don't think one micromel campaign changes the country, but I think a thousand do. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, really exciting um, and really moving. And yeah, we had the we had Henry um, on and um, and David and David, one of the Davids. Yep, um, oh, Henry. So there are two Henrys and oh, one David. <laughs> sorry, it was just two. Hen it was a Henry on Henry situation. David couldn't show up for whatever reason um, at the last minute. He had some family thing, but yeah, oh, yeah. And then maybe, um, you know, if, if the audience likes it, uh, then maybe, you know, Sky Whalen uh, might be a good guest at some point. Um, he's a terrific guy. He's done a number of interviews now, uh, one on The Hill or uh, different media outlets. Oh, great. Yeah. Awesome. It, it's so uh, moving to be able to, you know, the democratization of the media. Um, so what you're doing. Um, which is, you know, it, it's got to be our, our last hope. We used to say that the media was our last hope, but the media has become so corporate, corporatized and l reading the New York Times obituary of my dad was just, oh yeah, my, my daughter. So Mike's granddaughter came to me and said, why are they more interested in the decorum of the Senate than they are about the, the, the content of the papers? You know, if he, it was appropriate for him to weep. Right, of course. I mean, this yes. Disaster. It similar reminds me of the Bernie Sanders treatment where they're so, why is he so angry? It's like, actually, if you're not angry, if you're not disturbed by this, you're a sociopath or you just are totally jaded and no longer have any more feelings. Right. Um, but when people are more upset about people being upset about this stuff than, than the things that people oh. are upset about, it's such a terrible sign of loss. Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder why that happens. I mean, yeah, I could think, oh, okay, it's the corporatocracy. That's what makes it happen. You know, I think journalists, you know, come into this field because they want that. But I think what happens to them is kind of maybe what happened to Joe Loria, which is you get so disillusioned and cynical because of the, you know, the culture of mainstream media, what they right. want to put out which is just a big cat fight. Well, cat fight's not the right word, but just a big brawl, yeah. you know, of people and the personality politics, which is so ridiculous. You know, we, this isn't people magazine who cares about that. Um, it should be about the issues. And so they're not doing their job of educating the population about the issues. They're spending all their time talking about the personalities. Right. So. I mean, I'm guilty of that a little bit too, but, but it's different. Cause I, when they're good, when they're good, you know, like I like your dad's personality, I like Bernie's oh, personality. You. If thank they were you. terrible people though, then I obviously that wouldn't be enough. No, no, but you know, you don't talk about what 
Mike wears or right. what Bernie wears or, you know, who's got what kind of hair. Right. Uh, you know, so it's just, yeah, we're inculcated with that culture. So we, we have to unlearn a lot of things. The other thing that my dad told me that I always thought was so wise, which is when you read a lot of people's books, they'll spend 96%, 98% of the book defining the problem. Mm, and that right. makes us all think, oh, they're so smart. They're so smart because they've defined this, you know, I get it. I agree, you know. And so 98% of the book talking about the problem and then the last 2% talking about some solution. And the solution is usually the government should, the people right. should, but there's no mechanism for the people to do this. And that's why direct democracy, that fourth branch of government uh, the initiative, uh, the legislature of the people, you know, again, not replacing politicians, but he always said, find out how quick those politicians will get in line behind the people when there's actually a, a governing or a rulemaking process for the people to, to voice, to, to make their voice heard. Right. Um, shall we look at one of these terrible things just as a teachable <laughs> moment? Okay, thank you. Trigger warning, everyone. <laughs> okay. Um, Mike Gravel, unconventional two-term Alaska senator, dies at 91. Just yeah. remember what, not only obviously what um, Lynn has been saying to us, but also Daniel Ellsberg, who in theory, the New York Times, in theory, in theory, the New York Times respects, but we know not really. So this is how they describe this person who Daniel Ellsberg was just praising. Uh, he made headlines by fighting for an oil pipeline. By the way, totally intentionally saying that in a way that makes it seem like he was bad on the environment. Right. And not about the Native Americans, not yeah. what he did for the Native Americans and that they could have the resources of their land. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, ridiculous. Um, he made headlines for fighting, fighting for an oil pipeline and reading the Pentagon Papers aloud. After 25 years of obscurity, he reemerged with a quixotic presidential campaign. Um, I mean, you could also say he reemerged with a presidential campaign that push certain issues into the political discourse. I mean, there's so many other ways you could put it out there. Mm -hmm. But again, this, they said the stuff, if they're going to say this stuff about Bernie Sanders, who did pretty well, obviously they're going to say this about someone who was not as, as um, you know, uh, did not make as much of an impact numbers wise. But again, mm -hmm. in neither case, should it be phrased that way? Mm. But they can't focus on the issues. So everything's about the personality. As you said, Mike Rubella, two-term Democrat senator from Alaska, who played a central role in the 1970s legislation to build the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline, but who was perhaps better known as an unabashed attention-getter. Yeah. In one case, reading the Pentagon Papers aloud at a hearing at a time when newspapers were barred from publishing them and later mounting long-shot presidential runs. Okay. Died on Saturday at his home in Seaside, California. He was 91. Yeah. Can I pause you right there, Katie? Of course, yeah. This uh, this unabashed attention getter in a case when the uh, allowed when the papers were barred from publishing. The reason the papers were barred from publishing is because the Nixon administration was trying to shut them down. The Supreme Court case that came one day after my dad read the papers into the public record was decided. Um, I believe there were nine justices, six to three, that the Post could continue to, and the other newspapers could continue to publish these small excerpts. But in the opinions of the justices, it it shows how razor thin this could have gone easily the other way. They didn't want to make this in favor of the Post, but they had to 
because the papers were already out in the public record. So there would have been a reckoning back on the Supreme Court if they had said the Post shouldn't, the, the Post and the other papers can't do it. So the inaccuracies of this are astounding. The, the paper was barred from publishing. The, the Washington Post wouldn't exist today, in my opinion, if it weren't for Mike Gravel putting it into the public record, giving those nine justices something to really think about when they had to make their decision the next day, uh, whether the Post should be able to continue to print or not. So, you know, uh, this wasn't like the, you know, that that Mike was grandstanding, you know, so that the papers, he could get out there before the Post and the Times. He was trying to ensure that the Post and the Times would continue to publish. And to take that just one step further, if I might, they, the Post and the Publish only published a small portion of the papers. Uh, Mike wanted the full set that, uh, that Dan gave him originally to be published so that the people could read all the context around this. And um, again, uh, the Post didn't do it. The New York Times didn't do it. He had to go all the way. He tried all kinds of different publishers. Nobody would touch it. Beacon Press from the Unitarian Church took it on. And then they got harassed uh, and nearly bankrupted by by the uh, the Nixon administration, um, and uh, and then there was the Supreme Court case where uh, Mike was uh, got that legal precedent that it, he was just uh, or he uh, was correct in releasing the papers the way he did. So I mean, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is something the Pentagon Papers, there are a lot of causes like free speech causes, civil liberties causes, like, um, you know, anti-military industrial complex causes that I think are totally just, obviously, that everyone watching my show thinks that is true of, but like, isn't mainstream, doesn't have mainstream acceptance. Like the Pentagon Papers, libs, mainstream people claim to think that that was a good thing, Right. People mm-hmm. love and and Ellsberg himself on an u- episode of Useful Idiots had made this really interesting point about how he he's very aware when he gets played by people who are like, well, Ellsberg was good, but Snowden and Manning and Assange are bad. He's like, there's really no difference. You know, if one thing was good, if I, if I'm a hero, then other people should be also. Right. So the fact that the New York Times actually thinks that they can like. I mean, in a way, shout out to them for, for being so unaware and so self-incriminating that they didn't, because if they just said he was attention getting, they could have put something else in there that was like, would make it seem like they had more ground to stand on. They could have done something a little bit more just like flamboyant that he did, because people do things that are on a scale of flamboyance that are more fun. But this is so incredibly substantive. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you pretend that this is attention getting? It's literally raising alarm. It's sounding, I mean, it's like Paul Revere, Paul Revere, that's not to romanticize, you know, U.S. history, but like Paul Revere, that attention getting, you know, horseback rider who wouldn't shut up, you know, he, he just loved getting attention and looking for validation. Like this was the very important thing that he did, you know, like this is stuff like what, I mean, they cut your dad out of that movie. What was it? The Post? Yeah, I know. Like, these things are supposed to be good. These things are what like American democracy, you know, porn are made are based on. So right. sorry, I just get so angry because. It's no, just- I hear you. And the most dangerous man in America is far better. You know, uh, the right, post yes. is very important. But but again, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos owns the post. So the post has to be the star of the show. And nobody right. else would be the star, evidently. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Even Ellsberg was so downplayed in the post. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um. 
So here's some more ridiculous stuff. He was a quirky fixture in several early debates in 2007, calling for a constitutional amendment to allow citizens to enact laws by referendums. Like, that's not that weird. Yeah. He nonetheless persisted, showing, okay, um, but when the voting began in 2008, he never got 1% of the total. And in primary, wow, I can't, can't believe that, given how fair and balanced the media's uh, right. representation And they, they, uh, they asked right. him out, and then Kucinich was right after him. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just chop, chop, chop. Yeah. Um, he nonetheless persisted, showing the same commitment to going it alone that he had displayed by nominating himself for vice president in 1972, staging one-man filibusters, and reading the Pentagon Papers aloud. Again, that weird, quirky thing. Efforts that even senators who agreed with him regarded as grandstanding. Really? And where were those senators like Fulbright and and others that, that Dan mentioned at the beginning, McGovern? You know, so McGovern and all these others get a, a fabulous eulogy. And Mike gets this. I mean, wow. Really disgusting. Um, let's see. The next administration called for a swift. Okay. So they, yeah, he doesn't get into the pipeline of like what the pipeline did for Alaska. And back then it was an oil embargo and the destabilization of the U.S. economy. It was serious. You know, you're too young to remember the 70s, but <laughs> gas lines and, you know, out of control inflation and inflation that was brought on by an energy shock. Um, so, you know, people losing their jobs, you know, recession, you know, stagflation. Right. Uh, it was bad. Uh, and so the climate for finding some energy source and what we knew at the time, you know, the pipeline made sense. Uh, and, you know, today, you know, before, you know, uh, you know, when solar and wind started becoming, uh, more, um, uh, you know, available, uh, or, or thought about and studied, he yeah. was right there with the Aleutian, you know, the Aleutian chain is that's, you know, harness the wind of the Aleutian chain. Um, so yeah, no, it's, it's just, it's, it's a shame, and I just wanted to, you know, my my daughter pointed this out, which is at the end you'll see that the uh, the author of this obituary actually uh, is deceased. He died two years ago. So the New York Times lack of respect for my father is so uh, unbelievable that they took this from somebody who's already deceased. Um, Adam Clymer called me to fact check that, you know, yes, you know, my dad died. Uh, and that was about it. Oh, I'm sorry. Adam Clymer is the reporter that died. Right. In, in, and then Hayden was the one who called me. Oh, okay. I was like, I, from the dead, uh, Adam yeah. Clymer. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Thank Good, you yeah. for helping me on that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you want to like get someone, you know, you want to ask someone who's alive. Thanks again so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much to Lynn Mosier and also to Dan Ellsberg. Please rate and review the Katie Helper Show on iTunes. Please support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You can learn more about Mike Gravel and his legacy as well as the Gravel Institute at gravelinstitute.org. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Brad Bloom. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. Cordova.